Everybody's ready for a new week, right? Yay! Come on. Yay. All right, that's better. <laughs> okay. Got a homework for you. Do next. No. Remember, two weeks. I give them to you early because I know you're just going to put them away and ignore them anyway for a week. I probably should have given you the day before or two days before. But, but this way for the few that jump ahead. The second one is due I'm sorry? The second one is due tonight, yes. Now this one I have due the 30th. There is a quite a good possibility that will not be the due date, that it will be a little later than that. But I figured it was better to put it earlier and extend it than to try to get you to turn it in early. So, I didn't think that would work too well. So, I don't want it now. I can take it any time. I mean, if you're done with it, I can take it if you have until this evening to, to turn it in. So, homework two is due today. If you've got it now, I can take it after class. If not, you can email it to me as long as you get it before, well, not 11.30 midnight, as long as it's before midnight. So as long as it's dated today in the email, I'll take it. So don't wait to try to send it 11.59 because then it clicks over to 12 and then it's late. So, but if you still need to finish working on it or if you've got questions you want to ask on it after class, I can certainly help you with that. Quiz number two is still up and is on chapters two and three. And I have it scheduled to be available through tomorrow. I may push that off one more day for your class because we're not done with chapter three yet. And I don't know if I'll fully finish chapter three today. I've got like 20 slides to go through and I got through 10 last time. So, But of course this material goes a little quicker on this half of this chapter. So we'll see. But probably I might give you through Wednesday just if you want to hear the rest of what I have to say about the material. If you've already taken it of course, you could be done and taken it. I didn't even look. So people could have taken it and been done with it. But I'll probably extend that. I'll let you know at the end of class for sure, but probably extend that one more day for your class. First article review is due Friday. Yay, everything's coming due at once, I know. So if you have that, if you have that, you can turn that in again, the same as you turn in the homework. If you want to email it to me, you can email it as an attachment to me. That's just fine. Or you can turn it in in class on Friday. So it's up to you. As long as I get it by, again, the end of the day Friday, it's fine. And then the first iTunes quiz will be available later today. It's not, a, not active yet. I'm almost done with it. So I'll activate that probably sometime early afternoon. It'll be ready. And you'll have the week to do that through next, through Sunday. So you'll have time to do that. That is based on the pictures from the beginning of class through last Friday. It won't include anything on the picture we're going to talk about today or on any of the pictures from this weekend. It'll only go from the 22nd, through, 22nd of August through the 16th of September. And then homework three, again, for now it's due September 30th, depending on where I get, because if you'll notice, the telescopes one is the one that's due, and I guess I'm just getting through, I've gotten through most of that information for you already, at least the part for the homework. But this starts with the next set of chapters, and actually has the next two, well, actually it's on the next six chapters because our next unit is five chapters long, but we're going to breeze through it. It's, 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 the, it's the unit on the planets. So this chapters four, five, six, seven, and eight are all on the planets. And that's not what this course is about, but we're supposed to give you a brief overview. So I take about one week's worth and condense five chapters that I'd normally take five weeks on and do them in one week. So you'll see when I put the slides up that they're very condensed and there's little hit and miss stuff on it. I mean, I'm just picking little bits and pieces to give you a quick overview. 
So when it comes to reading, I don't expect you to read all those chapters. I don't expect you to read five chapters in the week. I would rather you look at what I give you on the PowerPoints and maybe review those sections of the chapters. So you're not stuck trying to read five chapters in a week. But that's coming up. So homework three, again, for now do the 30th. I'll keep, I'll keep you updated on that. That could change depending on how depending on how far I get. If I'm not getting through this by next Monday, I'll let you know. If we're not getting far enough where I think we're going to have talked about the sun before then, then I'll probably extend that and give you an extra day or into the next week. But Question? Question, question? No? Okay. Picture of the day for the day. Okay, it was a good one for the other class. Doesn't fit quite as well in with your class, except that that's what we'll be talking about the next chapter. That's our next unit is actually going to be, they said, the unit on the planets, although that's not a planet. It's actually an asteroid. And that's the asteroid Vesta. It's the second largest asteroid in the solar system. Now, we'll, can, we'll to get this to this later in the week, but the asteroids are little tiny, essentially little tiny planets. But they're tiny. It's only about 500 kilometers across. <laughs> oh, bless you. Only about 500 kilometers across. So that sounds pretty big. 500 kilometers is what, about 300 miles across? So that's, you know, what? That's about the size, maybe about the size, it's about the distance across Pennsylvania. About 300 miles, I think, somewhere around there. Right at right average distance. So it sounds big, but really small compared to the Earth. I mean, something the size of the state of Pennsylvania compared to the size of the entire Earth is quite a big difference. But there's a whole bunch of these asteroids out there. In fact, there's many thousands of them and they're still being discovered. We know the largest ones, but there's lots of little ones out there that are only kilometers across that are still being discovered. Now, why this one is so interesting? Well, first of all, it's where this picture was taken. And it wasn't taken from Earth. It wasn't taken from Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble Space Telescope pointed at this. Wouldn't get you much of a picture more than a little tiny dot because you're looking at something that's very, very far away from the Earth still and not very big. This is actually taken by a spacecraft that was sent to the asteroid belt. The Dawn spacecraft was sent a couple years ago and it arrived there, it arrived at this asteroid last month and it has actually gone into orbit. It is, they put it into orbit around the asteroid. So it's actually orbiting this very small, relatively small object and taking lots of pictures of it. So we're learning a lot about asteroids from this. And then next year this spacecraft's going to fire its engines and leave orbit. Luckily, it doesn't take much energy. If you think about the gravity of you know, how strong the Earth's gravity is, this thing's tiny. So it doesn't have much gravity. So it just has to fire its engines and leave. It can get away a lot easier. Sort of the way the astronauts could get away from the moon a lot easier than they could launch off. They needed the big Saturn rocket to launch off the Earth. But they could just use a little one to get away from the moon. So the gravity here is almost nothing. But it can fight, and it's going to go to another asteroid, the asteroid Ceres, which is the largest of the asteroids. But some things you see about this is you look at it, looks a little bit like a little moon. Looks like the Earth's moon, maybe just a little smaller. Lots of craters on it. So even though this is relatively small, it's got all these good impact craters where it's been hit by even smaller objects and looks in some ways like the surface of the moon. Craters or something we'll talk about, say, these next, once we finish up telescopes, then we go on to planets. And once we start talking about the planets, then we'll talk about, I'll mention craters quite a bit because we have craters on Mercury, Venus, Earth has a few, Mars, the Moon, 
Now we see them on the asteroids. They're large planets don't have any craters. Jupiter has no craters, Saturn has no craters, Uranus and Neptune have no craters. That doesn't mean nothing hits them. But they're big gas planets, so they have a big atmosphere, so it would be sort of like in a way on the Earth when that meteor hits the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't leave a crater. It might mess up the atmosphere for a little bit, and that actually happens on Jupiter. There's no comets that hit Jupiter, and they might mess up the atmosphere for a little bit, but you know, the water goes right back where the crater, where the meteor hit it, and the same thing would happen. But here, when you hit a solid surface, it leaves a remnant. And what we could tell is that when we look at these craters, if we look at how many craters there are in an object, you know, if we take each square mile of the object and count how many craters it has in the average, on average, it tells us how old the surface is. So Earth has lots of craters, right? We don't have craters all over the place, right? Why not? Where are they? Earth just not getting hit by stuff? We're special? No. But we have things that the other planets don't have. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere. So it doesn't have any wind, doesn't have any rain, no water. And all that stuff will slowly destroy the craters. So craters that do impact will, over millions of years, disappear. Now, millions of years is a long time. But the moon, most of the, a lot of the craters we see on the moon, we're talking are billions of years old. The moon hasn't changed. And in fact, if you go look at pictures of the moon now, they, have, they had one a little while ago of the moon where they were showing a close-up of one of the Apollo landing sites. And you can still see the tracks of the lunar rover. You know, how many years later? Almost 40 years, 40 years after, the last, after the last Apollo mission left the moon. You can still see the tracks easily, and they'll still be there you know, millions of years from now. The only weathering you get on these kind of planets is getting hit by more meteorites or if they're volcanically active. That's the other thing on the Earth that'll wipe them out. Now, if a crater occurs and lava flows into it and fills it up, it's gone. And that's happened on Mars and Venus as well. But the Moon has not had any volcanic activity in a while, and this asteroid probably has not. So when you see more and more craters, it tells you that the surface is very old. But the main thing they're pointing out on this picture is that there's kind of a lump here. This is the south pole of the asteroid. There's kind of a lump here and then kind of these you sort of see little concentric rings almost. And what they're thinking in, again, this is picture was taken in the last week probably, is that maybe something hit this at the south pole in sort of you know, good size, a really good size meteor, close to the, not quite as big as this, but still a good sized one, hit it and sort of formed almost a splash in the surface. So it smashed into it and deformed the surface. And we'll see that a little bit when we look at some of the other, other planets and impacts on them. But that's what we're pointing out here. Okay. Questions, 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 no questions. All right, let's go on to talk a little. We did all the we did pretty much did optical telescopes pretty well last time. And we were looking at we looked at the detectors. And we talked, I talked a little bit about the CCDs the last time. So, this is the new instrument, I mean, this is the current, I shouldn't say new now, it's been in use now for 30, probably about 30 years, 25, 30 years in astronomy. And they've gotten, I mean, the quality has improved and everything, so 
They're much easier to use for astronomy as compared to they used to be. But it's called the charge coupled device and it's just the same type of thing that you use in a digital camera or camcorder or anything else that takes a picture, to take a picture. And it's just a whole bunch of light sensitive cells. Here's the grid, that's what it would look like, you know. Zoomed up, that's one millimeter wide. So that's one millimeter, depending on how much resolution you're looking for on it. And all it does is a whole bunch of light sensitive cells, so if a photon hits it, if a light hits it, it counts that. And the more photons you get in each little section, then the brighter your image will be. So you might get a little digital readout like this, which would transform into a picture of this kind. So that's all it's doing. All it's doing is counting the, counting the photons. Now the other thing we use is, have used is photographic plates. A photographic plate is just a piece of film, but instead of the emulsion the, being put on the film, it's put on a piece of glass. And again, those are, were nice for some things. They took big wide area pictures of the sky, which was really nice. But they're also you know, a lot easier to break. If you fall down with your stack of plates as you're going to develop them, you just lost your whole night's worth of observing. Nowadays everything of course is digital so you can have it backed up 13 different times before your night's even done. Now the other thing that they use is image processing. So we can use our knowledge of the Earth's atmosphere and the telescope to turn different observations and actually look and process them to get more detail. So if we know how, usually things get smeared out by the atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere is turbulent, makes stars twinkle. So if you look at a star through the, through there, stars seem to twinkle a little bit. They change their, and all that is is the star changing its position because the light's coming through the atmosphere. And especially on those, you know, hot, sticky nights when the atmosphere is real thick and heavy, they twinkle a lot more. And they twinkle a lot less on those real cold, they're a real cold winter night, but that's when nobody wants to go out anyway and look at the stars. But if you know what's going on with the atmosphere, you can actually process, and we're here, you might have seen one big object and two little ones. Well, there they are again, but we're starting to see more detail and more, and depending on as you go, you can actually get much better resolution. So computer processing is used as well. But it requires a lot of work. I mean, you can't just, the information you have to know something else about how the atmosphere was blurring it to kind of work backwards. And that's one of the advantages that the Hubble telescope has, which is that it's up above the atmosphere. It's not, I mean, it's not a great telescope because it's an unusually large telescope. It's about 2.4 meters across. It's a good sized telescope, good size, me, good medium sized astronomical telescope, professional, I should say professional astronomical telescope. You're not going to go out and buy one, not unless you got a few millions of dollars to spend on a mirror. But for an astronomical telescope, it's middle-sized. I mean, we have some that we use that are one meter and two meters, and that's about two and a half meters, and there's others that are now five and ten and twelve and fifty. They're getting bigger and bigger. So it's not a very big telescope, but it's up above the atmosphere. So it can observe without having to look through, this, through the Earth's you know, turbulent atmosphere. So we get much better detail on it. And it's been up there for 20, year, 20 years now, and it's already surpassed what its life was supposed to be. I think it was about 15 years was originally projected. So NASA's had some very good luck with some of their items uh, lasting a lot longer than they were supposed to. 
So here we're already you know, five, six years beyond what we were supposed to last. The Mars rover that we've looked at pictures from is already was only supposed to last a short time. And the one, one's gone, but the other one's still going there. And when the Voyager spacecraft in the 70s were launched, they were only supposed to go to Jupiter and Saturn, and they were able to get them out to Uranus, the one out to Uranus and Neptune as well. So they've been able to make some very good, very good things. But this one, another nice thing about it, being up in space, the atmosphere not only distorts everything, but it brightens everything. So right now, an optical telescope doesn't do you much good to look at the stars. If I want to take an optical telescope and look for stars right now, I'm not going to have too much luck. Hubble Space Telescope isn't constrained by that. It can't point a certain distance away from the sun because that will damage its instrumentation. But it's pretty much free to observe 24 hours a day. So we can look at stuff now. We can look at stuff you know, 8 hours from now, 16 hours from now. 20, we can look at it all the time. The only thing you're constrained at is to how close to the sun you look. Because you don't want to look too close to the sun with the instruments because you, da- you can damage it. And that sort of comes into, we'll talk about in a little bit, we'll talk about radio telescopes. Radio telescopes have the same advantage. Radio telescopes can observe right now. In fact, there are radio telescopes um, that are observing item, objects right now. Because the sky is real bright, invisible light, but in radio waves it's dark. So for radio waves, it's quite dark outside right now. As long, again, as long as you don't look too close to the sun. Even radio telescopes have that issue. The sun does emit radio waves. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But the Hubble Space Telescope has a number of different instruments in it. It has an instrument package down at the back. This is the sun shield on it. And then down at the bottom here is that mirror that's 2.4 meters. And then there's an instrument pack. Actually, the mirror would be here, and then the instrument pack would be down below. So it would have an instrument pack down below to actually detect the light. Because we can't just relay that light directly to Earth. We have to detect it completely up there. Now, when Hubble was first launched, it had some issues, for anyone who remembers that, that there was a problem with it. They got it all up there. Everybody was all excited, and the first pictures were blurry. And the second pictures were blurry, and the third pictures were blurry. And they eventually had to backtrack and found out that the mirror had been ground just very slightly, and we're talking you know, millimeters, or less than millimeters, off of the proper shape. So it was focusing everything quite, quite a little bit off. So it blurred out everything. It wasn't getting any better resolution than you got on the ground with the atmosphere blurring it because the mirror of the telescope was blurring everything. So what, you got, what we had to do was send up a little pair of glasses, essentially, or one glass, you know, a monocle to, to have it, to fix the telescope. But we, could, we knew exactly, when you know exactly what's wrong with it, and fortunately we had the shuttle to go up there and take it and put the, uh, put the correction in, and now it works just fine. And it's been going fine for, you know, say, 20 years, right? 20 years now. And here's an example of the detail. And you can see how you're looking in so much more detail there. This, for example, is a real good Earth-based telescope. That's not a bad image of a galaxy. That's a pretty nice image of a galaxy. But if you look at the detail that Hubble is able to see in it, you can see when you're looking even in just the center of that galaxy, now Hubble zooming in on the center that we can't do here. That's overloaded, too bright. Hubble zooming in on the little bit at the center there and seeing all that detail in the center that gets all washed out on Earth because of the atmosphere. 
Now that's been fixed a little bit on Earth. We've gotten a lot more, we've gotten a lot more technology that is able to actually adapt the telescopes and take into account the atmosphere. So we can actually now do this good on, do really good on Earth. But you can see the amount of detail is different. Again, here you're looking at this little core of the galaxy that was all just washed out here in this image. So look at the powers of a telescope. What do telescopes do? Well, there's three things you might want a telescope to do, or that a telescope can do. They have three what we call powers. The first is light gathering power. So the So the first one is the light gathering power. How much light a telescope can gather. And that's one that astronomers really want. They want to get as much light as they can. Astronomers are always looking at faint objects. You know, they don't there are solar astronomers, but most astronomers don't want to just take pictures of the sun. You know, Jupiter, Venus, things that are relatively bright. The Andromeda galaxy, it's a relatively bright galaxy, but when we're looking at it, we're looking for the faint parts of it. So we're looking for, we want the most light we can because we want to look at all of those distant stars, all those distant galaxies. That's what we're trying to take a picture of. Now the example shown here is the brightness of an image and the only change between these two images of the same galaxy. And you can see there's a big difference, right? Here you've got a nice, you can see a galaxy, there's a blob there. But you can see a lot more detail in this galaxy in this one. The only difference is the telescope is twice as big. So if you're looking at one with a 6-inch telescope and one with a 12-inch telescope. So if you're ever looking, if you're looking to buy a telescope, you want to get the biggest one you can possibly afford. Again, the price also goes up as you go to the, more, to the bigger telescopes. But you do want to get you want to get the biggest telescope you can afford because you're going to collect the most light. The light gathering power depends on the square of the diameter. Diameter? Square of the radius, either way. The square of the radius of the mirror. Or lens. But in most cases it's going to be a mirror. So that means that if we double the size of a mirror. So if they double the size of the mirror, means four times the light gathering power. LGP, light gathering power. So I'll write it all out again. So if we double the size of a mirror, we're going to get four times the light gathering power. Sort of like gravity. It's a square. It's a square. Square law. Although this one is a direct, so it's actually the bigger you make the mirror, the more light you're going to gather. So it should make sense to you. So we want the biggest mirror we can possibly get. So when we go from a 2.4 meter mirror to something, some of the biggest ones are about five times that size now. So we're making the mirror five times bigger, we're getting 25 times the light gathering power. So we can see things that are 25 times fainter than we did before. So that gives us a few more magnitudes down the scale, able to see things even, even fainter. Now a couple of ways that we do this, because it's been difficult to build big mirror, to make, you know, 
Well, we just want to make a mirror that's 50 meters across, make a gigantic mirror. It gets real hard to do that because you have to be able to control the mirror. You've got to be able to move it to steer it where you want to do it. And if you've got a mirror 50 meters across, even though I said you can put all the, metal, all the metal you want to support it behind it, it still gets to be heavy to get something that's going to steer it and keep it in the right shape. So there's a lot of things that they're doing now. And one thing they've done is they've made, they've made multiple telescopes. So the Keck 1 and the Keck 2 here are actually two, a set of two telescopes that can be used together. So you can double the light gathering power without making twice as big of a mirror. And when you're talking about mirrors this size, you know, doubling the size of the mirror doesn't double the cost. You know, the cost goes up 20 times or something like that. So if the one costs you know, $10 million, then we want to go twice as big, now all of a sudden you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a big difference. Whereas you could build two mirrors of the same size for a relatively small for a relative smaller price. But you see a number of different telescopes. This is actually on the mountain in Hawaii. And there's a number of different telescopes. There's an infrared telescope, the Gemini telescope, the north one. Gemini's the twins, so there's a Gemini south down in Chile. And there's an infrared telescope. You see there's a couple infrared telescopes up here. Again, infrared telescopes, we can observe on the surface of the Earth, but you've got to be up, tall, up high in the atmosphere. That's why they're on the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. So even though they're in the middle of the ocean, when you're that high up, you're above so much of the water that you don't get much water through the atmosphere, in the atmosphere at that point, and you can actually observe in the infrared. So telescopes, they tend to find a good site and add the telescopes there and keep bringing the telescopes there. But that's one example of what you can do. And here in Chile, the very large telescope, VLT. And that's actually a set of four telescopes here in Chile that are used to observe. And again, a high mountaintop in Chile. You're way up above the atmosphere. And even better, because in Chile, you're real far away from everything, right? You're real far away from all the lights. So on a remote mountaintop in Chile is good. Even Hawaii isn't too bad, because as long as you're not looking towards one of the, ma the major cities, like Honolulu, you're looking out over the ocean, there's not a lot of stuff there. So you don't have a lot of light pollution. Whereas if you were to put a nice big telescope in the middle of downtown Harrisburg, it's not going to see a lot of stuff, just because there's so much light around. So that's why we put everything further away now. But that's another example of them. And again, I love the inventive names, right? Very large telescope. All right, number two. So light gathering power is important. The other one is resolving power. And resolving power is simply when you have a better resolving power, you can see objects that are closer together. And you can see them as separate objects. Now the resolving power depends on two things. It depends on the wavelength you're observing. And it depends on the telescope size. So it's proportional to, inversely proportional to the telescope, so 1 over the radius of the telescope or the diameter of the telescope. So if I double the size of the telescope, the resolving power is half. But half in resolving power is good. Because resolving power, you want the smallest number you can get. You want it to be small. So actually, that means making a very big telescope gives you much better resolving power. 
and you're able to see more closely separated objects. We looked at the pictures of the galaxies. If you have much better resolving power, you can separate out individual stars. So you could see where there's 20 stars there that you can now pull out that are bright enough to see. As compared to the resolving power, they were just too close together and you just got one big blurred galaxy. The resolving power of your eyes isn't that good. If you get to go see the Milky Way galaxy, it looks like a big band of light. You see, that's nice in the evening sky right now, but it's also in the middle of Harrisburg. So unless you're out someplace, you're probably not going to see it too good. But you can't see that as stars. But it's actually, if you point a telescope or binoculars at it, you can actually see that there's many thousands of stars there. They're just all blurred together. Your eyes can't resolve them into individual stars. It's all blurred together. So you want the biggest telescope you can in order to get the better light gathering power and the better resolving power. Now the other thing it depends on there is it dep also depends on the wavelength. Uh, let me write it out for you. Not too many symbols. Wavelength. And that just means the shorter the wavelength, the better resolving power. If you'll see it in the textbook, but the Greek letter lambda is used to wave, do wavelength. That's why I started to write, but that's just what's used to distinguish, to determine the variable for wavelength. So the shorter the wavelength, the better the resolving power. So that means that if you're looking in just visible light and you want to get the best resolving power you can, you're going to do a little bit better in blue light than you are in red light, because red light has a shorter, wa a longer wavelength. If you look at the whole electromagnetic spectrum, Radio waves have really, really long wavelengths, so they have a really poor resolving power. We'll come back in another section to talk about that. Because then that means that radio telescopes, they can make them real big to get this light gathering power, but you still got to make them even bigger to get a good resolving power. And that would mean the gamma rays would give you the best resolving power, except they're too high energy. You actually can't focus gamma rays. So there's no way to focus them and actually get an image. We can detect them, but we can't actually focus and bring in, you can't get a picture of what the universe looks like in gamma rays and take an image like you take an image of a galaxy in visible light. But resolving power is just comes down to this. And this is the example here. If you're looking through a wall, at a wall, and as you have a wave coming in, it spreads out. And if you had two of these, they'd spread out, and you'd have two spread out. And you'd only be able to see when you get down here to your screen, if you had another one up here and it had spread out exactly the same, they'd be all blurred together. You wouldn't be able to separate those as two distinct objects. So you get that fuzziness around it. Whereas if you make them, as you get more and more, you're able to focus it better and better and get a better, Im get a better image on it. So it depends on two things. The resolving power depends on, depends on the wavelength and depends inversely on the size of the telescope. So a big telescope does real good for you on light gathering power and real good for you on resolving power. Now how does that change? Here's how we improve the resolution. First one is really, really bad, what we call seeing. Seeing is how the atmosphere looks. So really, really bad seeing. You know, that's what you get from you know, in the middle of summer when you're real down close to the ocean someplace and the atmosphere is just turbulent all over the place. The number given up at the top is about 10 minutes of arc. So you can see things that are separated by more than 10 minutes of arc. You can see them distinctly, as you can see these two here. 
you know, the galaxy and this little satellite there. But as you improve the resolution and go to one second of arc, getting a little more typical for the Earth, or five seconds of arc, you start to see, more, you see how you start to see more and more detail. Look at all the stars that you see here that weren't even visible. They're just, you know, they're so blurred out that they're just gone. You can't even see that they're there. And as you get finally down to one second of arc, and that's typically what you can do that on the, on the Earth. You can get that with really good instruments. You can get down to a second of arc. But that's still blurring. It's, it looks a lot better, but it's still very blurred compared to what you get from the Hubble telescope or what you get from some of these ones that have used adapt, what we call adaptive optics and actually can change the shape of their mirror on the go to take into account the to take into account the motions of the Earth's atmosphere. So what if resolution does is give us a sharper image. So if you're trying to study it and learn something, it's a lot easier to learn something about this than it is to learn about this. And this is an example of what actually happens. So what is happening is that as these light rays from the distant object come through the atmosphere, they get deflected and they get turned this way and that way and they end up coming all sorts of places. So it might be that, for example, the star is right here at the center of this circle. So maybe that, that's where the star really is. But because of the atmosphere, one time you see it there and the next instant it's there and the next instant it's there and then it's here and here and here and, here, and it's all over the place, all over the circle. Now you don't see it jumping around because when you take a picture through the telescope, what do you do? You leave your camera or exposure open for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, depending on what you're trying to see. So in that time, this image is jumping all around this whole thing. So when you're done, you end up getting a big disk about an arc second in size. If you could get rid of that, then you just get that point right there. That's what you really want. You want to see it just where it's exactly supposed to be. But you're limited. You can't get rid of the at- you can't just get rid of the atmosphere. You, know, you can't make a hole in the atmosphere so you can just point your telescope through it. It doesn't work too well. Things tend to fill back in. And you can only put so many telescopes up above the atmosphere. It's not cheap to put a telescope up into up into space. But that's what's happening. So all you're doing is you're seeing all these many thousands and thousands over your exposure to blur it out to blur out the teles- to blur out the image. So you can get rid of that by taking much shorter exposures, but then you're not collecting as much light, so you're not going to see anything faint. Work real good for maybe the sun, where you can take a split second exposure and get it it directly, but you can't do that when you're taking a picture of a distant 30th magnitude galaxy with a telescope. You have to let it sit there and you have to let it watch for two hours, maybe. Now you can't keep the atmosphere still for two hours, no matter how nice and calm it looks to us, it just doesn't stay still for two hours. So this is a problem with telescopes on the Earth, and especially with optical telescopes on the Earth. So what do we do? We put telescopes on mountaintops. And we saw pictures there. We saw the one on the mountains in Chile. We saw one on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And especially in the deserts. And that helps. That gets us the desert. The air is usually calmer and less water in it. So if you put them on a high mountain, Mountaintop, because you're getting above a lot of the atmosphere. 
You know, if you go up high on a mountain, if you go up high enough, you know, you may need oxygen to be able to breathe, to breathe well. If you get up to a high, one of the higher mountains, you may need oxygen to assist you in breathing just because the air is so much thinner there. It's not good if you're going to go up there and run, but it's good if you're going to go up there and observe with a telescope. So that's one thing that is done, and that's done all the time. The other thing that's done is to put telescopes into space. Hubble Space Telescope is one big example. <coughs> There's been others too. There is the, the Webb Telescope is supposed to be Hubble's replacement that is still being planned, but we're not sure where it's going right now. You know, with the budgetary considerations, it may not make it through. It may get slashed. So it's supposed to be a real nice, bigger telescope than Hubble with a lot more features. But whether it's going to actually go or not is still a big question. It's still being planned and worked on, and it's in progress. They have a whole, I know they had a whole big mock-up of what it's, how it's supposed to look. But whether it will ever get finished is a good question. And the other thing that we use is what we call active optics. You can control the mirrors. And this is where our technology has come a long way, you know, in 50 years. 50 years ago, you had one big mirror was your telescope, and you pointed it where you pointed it and took your picture. Now, we can actually get sometimes thinner telescopes, or sometimes we put them in multiple segments. We looked at one last time that had like 36 different honeycombed segments put into it. And you can adjust each of those individually. So if you know, for example, how they're expanding based on temperature, you can, computer control can automatically change them and keep your the best image possible. So you can take something that would look, should look like this, looking through the Earth's atmosphere. There's that whole disk that we looked at before. And if you can take care of adjusting the, the optics and the telescope, you can actually see all these individual objects in it. So a lot more detail for the astronomers to be able to study and better understand that object. If you're looking at this, all you're learning about is what these are overall what this whole conglomeration looks like when it's merged together into one big blob. If you can look at each individual star in there, then you can do things like spectroscopy and you can get in look study each star individually and learn even more about it. The other thing that they do for the atmosphere, and I don't think I got to get a picture of that in here. I don't think I have one. No, let me go back one first. Okay. The other thing that they do is they measure the atmosphere. So we make an artificial star. And I'll see if I can find the picture maybe for next time. But there's actually an image that they'll show of a big telescope. And you see a laser beam shooting out, of the out from the telescope. And that laser is making, essentially, it's exciting molecules in the upper atmosphere and making a little star, an artificial star. Now we know exactly what that star should be like based on we sent the certain amount of radiation up to make it. And when it comes back down and the telescope observes it, it knows exactly what it should look like, and it can adjust the observations of everything else to take into account. So it can learn exactly what the atmosphere is like, and we can take out all the atmospheric effects. So it's a real nice way to get really accurate observations on the Earth. So you take this laser, make your artificial star, observe that star, and anything that it deviates happened as it came through the atmosphere. And you can actually get much more detail about objects that way as well. Okay, so that was optical astronomy. Optical telescopes, radio telescopes. 
A lot like reflecting telescopes. Radio telescopes are all big reflectors, look like a nice big satellite dish. This is a pretty good size one. This looks like this, uh, I didn't label it. It should be a green bank in West Virginia. That's about 100 meters across. 100 meters, about 100 yards, about a football field across. So you could put a football field in there. Be a little curved trying to run back and forth. It might be a little difficult, but you know. And, but there, it's, it's just, it looks just like the optical mirrors that we talked about. So a big satellite dish, essentially. But it's that same sort of, sort of, same sort of curved shape that collects the area, collects the energy. So radiation comes in and bounces off and up to a focus. And essentially, they're all done with the prime focus. With the size of the telescope, you can see how big that is. This little bit of putting a detector in front of it is blocking such a small part of it. That's the easiest way to detect with a radio telescope. So they're all just done prime focus, and then you detect the radiation, and then that's just sent back down to a control room down towards the bottom or in a building off to the side, probably over here somewhere. That way we would actually receive the data and analyze it. The nice thing is that they are, a radio telescope doesn't have to be as nice and smooth as an optical telescope. Optical telescope has to be almost completely smooth. Almost perfectly smooth. It has to be smooth, as smooth as the wavelength of light that it's observing. Question? Question? Probably would, but it would probably overwhelm the sensitive instruments because it's too, it would be too strong. But yeah, you would pick up you would pick up background no, background noise with it. But <laughs> get really good detail there, huh? But yeah, they can be made so the optical telescope has to be very very smooth. It has to look smooth to the wavelength. So if you're looking at wavelengths that are 600 nanometers, the surface has to be smooth to 600 nanometers. So it looks smooth to that wavelength. If you're looking at things that are three or four hundred nanometers towards the ultraviolet, you have to have it smooth, twice as smooth, in order to look at those. Radio telescopes look at things that are two centimeters, four centimeters, ten centimeters. They only have to be that smooth. Yeah? Will they pick up interference They wouldn't, but they're also, you're looking at certain frequencies too. So essentially where Green Bank is in West Virginia is a radio free zone, radio quiet zone. So you can't have like, you can't have, I mean, you know, like you have all the ham amateur radio operators. They're not allowed to operate within a certain region of this. But you're also looking at certain wavelengths and there's certain wavelengths and frequencies that are protected. So for example, and we'll talk about it later, but hydrogen emits wavelengths at 21 centimeters. So no radio can broadcast at 21 centimeters. It's reserved for science. The ones that are reserved that are used are one, you know, there are certain like FM, AM bands are used, or other ones that are reserved for that. So the whole radio spectrum is split up that way. So there's certain regions that are important to astronomy that are reserved and nobody broadcasts in them. So if we're looking at 21 centimeters and somebody's broadcasting at, you know, 12, it doesn't interfere because it's a, you're only looking for that very narrow range of frequencies. It would be like broadcasting in red light, but looking for blue, you know, the interference is in blue. If all your look for your filter is only getting red light, the blue light isn't going to affect it. 
Well, actually, you got to change. You have to change. You pretty much change the whole. De- there's a whole detector. At least the one I use, you had to change a whole detector up here. So you'd actually have to take a get up to the top. Now I don't know. This one may be different. I don't know. They might have multiple detectors up there. The one we had, we had two, four, and six centimeters. You looked at, and you physically had a big elevator. You know, one of those elevator things that went straight up, and you'd turn the telescope down so it was low as possible, but you'd still be going up. You know. What, it was an 85 foot, so you'd be going up 40 feet in the air, straight up with nothing. It was fun. To slight ones, but if you're going to change it completely to look like at 2 centimeters versus 4, it's a big, it's a whole different detector to detect it. There's no way just to change that. You have to have a different detector on that. But yeah, and it, was, it wasn't this telescope, it was a slightly smaller, it was a bit, bit smaller one. But you know, you'd also have you could also climb up through there to get some of the equipment. So my wife never wanted to hear about when I was working on the telescope and climbing up the bag. Wait till I came home. <laughs> Hopefully. So. But they can be made very, very large because you don't have to smooth them out as much. If you're looking at six centimeter wavelengths and you've got little bumps on it that are several centimeters across, they don't, the, the radio waves don't even see it. They don't care. Sort of like if you ever used a satellite dish. Right, little satellite dishes, they can get some leaves on them. It doesn't dis- your picture doesn't disappear. They can get a good amount of snow on them and your picture doesn't usually completely disappear. So, same thing with the radio telescope. Here's the largest one, 300 meters. 300, so three football fields across. Now if you notice one thing about it, this one doesn't get steered any place. It's actually built and hollowed out into the mountains. So it's actually, you can't turn it. It can only look straight up. So it can only look at things that pass relatively close to straight overhead. And this is in Arecibo in Puerto Rico. But they are 300 meters across. So it's three times bigger than that other one that we looked at. And then the detector is up here. Now you can move the detector a little bit to either side. And that allows you to look at a band overhead. So you're not stuck with just what's straight overhead. You can adjust it a little bit to where you're looking. But you can't go look towards the horizons or even close. You're stuck to a very narrow range towards overhead. But you have this incredibly large collecting area. So three times larger means you can see things nine times fainter in the radio than the objects we looked at with the smaller telescopes. You could see things that are much, much fainter. And you're going to get much better resolving power, much better resolution. Those apply towards radio telescopes as well. Now the other thing with the resolving power, remember I said big telescope, that's 300 meters across, that should give you a really good resolution, right? Only problem is the wavelengths are even worse. You might be 300 meters compared to a 3 meter telescope would be 100 times better resolution. It's about 100 times better resolution than Hubble should be able to get. But the wavelength is not, what did I say, not hundreds of times better, but it's many thousands, is much worse. So the wavelengths are even longer. If you're looking at an 8 centimeter wavelength versus a couple hundred nanometers, it's not just a few hundred times, you're talking thousands and tens of thousands of times longer wavelength. So you get very poor angular resolution with radio astronomy, especially with the two telescopes I just so- showed you. Even that biggest one does not come close, the Arecibo telescope does not come close to what you see in optical. 
Now some of the advantages though, and we'll come about how astro- radio astronomers get around that part in a minute, but some of the advantages of radio astronomy are, first of all, you can observe 24 hours a day. So radio telescope could observe right now and work just fine, no problems. So 24 hours a day, you can get the telescopes. One I worked at was automated. So I mean, you'd have someone there to monitor it during the day, you'd have a set of program as to what sources you were going to observe, and you let it run. So it could run all night, all day. The only issues you'd have, well, clouds don't even matter. So even if it's cloudy, it doesn't matter. You can look through clouds, radio waves come right through the clouds. Rain, eh. As long as it's not too bad. If it's a thunderstorm, that's a different issue. But if it's just raining, you can observe right through the rain. So, another advantage. And snow. Now, thunder, thunderstorm is different. A thunderstorm is an electrical discharge, so a thunderstorm would cause, the, would cause interference. So if you get thunder and lightning coming in, then you'd either have to shut down the telescope or you'd have to throw out because those observations you'd be able to tell would be all over the place. Just because you're getting interference from that, from that thunder. Well, not from the thunder, the lightning. Thunder doesn't matter. Thunder doesn't care what the thunder's doing. But you can observe 24 hours a day. Clouds, rain, and snow don't matter. And the big thing is, again, I said, the first time we're looking at an entirely different wavelength, an entirely different frequency. We're, lo- we're seeing a completely different object. Well, same object, but we're seeing it two frequencies. And that's what this picture is showing you here. And if you notice down at the bottom, it's not, usually we have one highlighted, now we've got radio and visual. So this whitish part is the visible image of the galaxy. And so that's what we see when we look through a telescope, but to the same scale, this is what it looks like in the radio. Quite a different galaxy, depending on whether you looked at it with radio or with optical. And we'll come back when we talk about galaxies towards the end of the class and talk about that a little bit more. So I think we are about out of time. I'll finish up on radio astronomy astronomy next next time. And there's only a little bit there talking about the others. So the quiz, I'll go ahead and give you, I'll extend it to one more day, just to be, because I didn't get through all of this chapter. So if you've done it already, you're fine. If you haven't done it, you don't need to do it by Tuesday. I'll put it through Wednesday. I'll, I'll adjust it through Wednesday. Homeworks I will take now if you've got them, or make sure you get them emailed to me by the end of the day.